It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. Hey guys, welcome, welcome, welcome. Truth is ever to be found in simplicity and not in multiplicity and confusion of things. That's the quote of the day by Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton, truth is to be found in simplicity and not in the multiplicity and confusion of things. And uh, David Epstein, thank you for sending that quote in. So do you have a favorite quote? You want to hear it on the air? Send it to me. I'm available on all the, uh, what do you call it, uh, channels like Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter. So uh, make it happen. And um, uh, we'll, uh, we'll give you full credit for bringing it on. All right. Let's get the party started. Uh, Stephen Landsberg uh, is my guest today. Uh, Stephen Landsberg is a professor of economics at University of Rochester. He's the author of More Sex is Safer Sex, The Big Question, and the best-selling The Armchair Economist, among others. He has written for Forbes, Slate, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. Stephen Landsberg, welcome to Money for Lunch. Thank you for having me. You bet. You bet. So, um, it's kind of a, I have to ask, it's kind of a weird, uh, not necessarily weird, but it's, it's definitely different going from, let's say, the armchair economist to sex is safer or what is more sex is safer sex. I, uh, you know, and usually economists kind of stay, you know, when, when somebody writes about the economy, they usually kind of stay in that whole financial area. But that's a huge diversion. Well, I, I want to claim it's not that big a diversion. Economics is all about understanding the incentives that people are facing and understanding the uh, strategies that they adopt uh, to deal with the world, given those incentives, uh, and trying to uh, tease out some of the more unexpected consequences of the fact that people are, are uh, pursuing their incentives. Uh, in the case of sex, uh, there are all sorts uh, – it brings up the issue uh, – the same issues that come up in the economics of, for example, pollution. Um, polluters uh, put too much pollution into the atmosphere because they don't bear all the costs of that uh, pollution. Um, when people don't get rewarded for their beneficial activities, they do too little of them. When they get rewarded for their uh, – uh, uh, for cost, uh, for activities that impose costs on other people, they do too much of that stuff. And when you're making decisions about uh, sex, how many sex partners to have, which sex partners to have, you are making decisions that affect a lot of people other than yourself, not just the partner that you're choosing, but that partner's future partners in case you've passed on any sort of a disease or anything. And so uh, uh, the book you're talking about, uh, I, I explored the consequences of the fact that people make choices which have both costs and benefits for people other than themselves. They may not be making the very best choices for other people, even if they're making the best choices for themselves. And trying to, uh, and it turns out, uh, 
if you work through all that, and I'll encourage people to buy the book if they want to see more details, but uh, it turns out once you work through all that, that uh, some people are, are having too much sex, and those are the people who are very promiscuous and very likely to be infected with terrible diseases. And uh, in some cases, they're having sex with people and passing those diseases on, which we don't want them to do. Uh, but there are other people who actually could make the world safer if they had more sex, people who are certainly not infected with anything. If you're not infected with anything, you go out and find a new partner tonight, you are saving that partner from the prospect of possibly going home with somebody who might have had a bad infection. And so uh, surprisingly enough, uh, if you could encourage the most promiscuous people to have fewer partners and at the same time encourage the least promiscuous people to have more partners, you would on both accounts slow down the spread of bad diseases. Uh, that's a little surprising. People don't fully expect it. But it's exactly the kind of reasoning that we do in economics all the time, uh, teasing out the unexpected consequences of, of people following their, following their incentives and uh, interacting with other people. Wow. Yeah, that, uh, that went in a completely different way than I thought it was going to go. <laughs> all right. So, you know what, since we're talking about your books, why don't you give us uh, – why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about your books? Uh, and, you know, since we've kind of already talked about uh, more sex is safer sex, why don't you kind of give us a, the Reader Digest version on uh, some of your other stuff? Well, my newest book is Can You Outsmart an Economist? And uh, this one uh, consists of about 120, I think, uh, little brain teasers and puzzles that teach you something about economics along the way as you try to solve them. Uh, they're presented in such a way that I think they can be fun to think about whether you're trying to learn some economics or not, but also presented in such a way that while you're thinking about them, you sort of can't avoid learning some economics. Um, the, the, the theme of most of the puzzles is that you got to look beyond the obvious. Uh, when you see people behaving in ways that look a little hard to explain, uh, it's always very easy to say, well, they're doing that because they're stupid or they're doing that because they're irrational or they're doing that because they haven't thought things through. But usually when people are pursuing their own interests, they're, they're actually smarter about it than you expect them to be. And if you think a little harder about what's going on behind the scenes, you can, you can often get some real insight into what people are up to. Yeah. You know what? And, and I think, I think, that when you present material in this way, uh, puzzles and teasers, it, it does a couple of different things. Obviously, it, it gets people thinking about economy, uh, or and it also uh, helps with overall brain function, and it's it's fun and entertaining. Sure. Uh, would you like an example or two? Yes, yes. Okay, so I'll, I'll give you an example, which uh, is clearly in the realm that uh, – people would think of as economics and uh, uh, maybe another example that's a little farther afield. Uh, when, uh, when there is an interruption in the world's oil supply for one reason or another, we see gas prices go up. We right. see gas prices go up uh, often quite dramatically. Uh, and this has happened many times off and on over the last 30, 40, 50 years. I'm sure probably before that too. Uh, and the question is, when, when uh, there's an interruption in oil supply and gas prices go way up, there are always people saying, aha, that's evidence that the oil companies are colluding. That's evidence that they are acting as a monopoly or acting as a cartel, that they're 
they're uh, plotting together to keep prices up. And the question is, does that make sense? And to most people on the surface, it certainly seems to make sense, but it actually makes no sense at all. And here's the reason. If these people were capable of colluding to keep prices up, if they were able to overcome all the obstacles to that, they would not have to wait for an oil supply interruption to do it. The prices would have been high already in advance of any oil supply interruption. The fact that the prices respond to external events like that is actually evidence that they are not good at colluding. It's evidence that, uh, that prices only go up when some outside force causes them to go up. And so the, the higher those prices rise, the more you can be confident that what you're seeing is action and not collusion. Wow. Uh, That's pretty cool. Or um, take another example. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you another one from, from, from economics. Uh, you see a couple of big airlines uh, that are looking to merge, and okay. uh, there's a lot of controversy about whether they should be allowed to merge or not. If you see, and um, often the question is, why are they merging? Are they merging so they can fix prices, or are they merging so they can be more efficient? One way to tell is to look at what the little airlines are saying. If the little airlines are trying to block the merger, if the little airlines are trying to block the merger, it's okay. a good bet. It's a good bet that the merger is going to uh, make the airlines more efficient and bring prices down, because the little airlines want the big airlines to be expensive. The more expensive your competitors are, the more you can charge. If the result of the merger is going to be a lot of price fixing and high prices, you would expect the competitors to favor that. If the result of the merger is going to be more efficiency and lower prices, you would expect the uh, competitors to oppose that. And so uh, any big merger that is generally opposed by the little airlines is probably good for consumers. Any big merger that is uh, applauded by the smaller airlines is probably bad for consumers. And again, that goes opposite to the way many people, uh, many people expect. That is very, you know, it's very, very, uh, I think it's very cool to look at that. It makes sense. Once you explain it, you're right. If, if I'm quote a little, uh, competitor, I want the big guy to be expensive. Uh, so I'm going to look that more and more, I'm going to look that much more attractive if all of a sudden they're going to become more efficient and therefore be able to compete with a lower price, I certainly don't want that. Absolutely. And so uh, the, the louder the little guys are screaming about preventing this merger, the more, you can, you, the more you can be confident that that merger is in fact going to bring prices down. Yeah, I like that. All right. Uh, so, so let me ask you this. Uh, and then, I'll, you know, if you have a couple more, that'd be great. But let me ask you this. What inspired you to write this book in this format of, of puzzles and teasers? Well, uh, many years of teaching and many years of blogging. And uh, my, um, my blog readers in particular, I discovered from them by trial and error over the years that they were generally more responsive when I post things as puzzles. Uh, I could have written a blog post about the airline pricing business, and I'm sure it would have gotten some readership and some response it as a puzzle. If the small airlines are opposing this merger, what can you conclude about how the merger will affect prices? Uh, when you pose it as a puzzle, people so are, are more all over it. They jump on it. They like thinking about it. 
they like trying to figure out the answer for themselves. And uh, in a time after time, when I've blogged, I've discovered that uh, my readers, at least, and I think they're probably typical of a much broader audience, uh, they like being given a chance to think about things for themselves rather than just being told the answers. And uh, uh, given the response I was getting from that audience, I carried it over into the book. Smart, smart. I like that. And you're right. I mean, look, uh, you know, uh, when you're looking at gamifying anything, right? So you take a subject matter that a lot of people don't understand or they don't think they can understand or they think it's a heavy subject matter and you can break it down into puzzles and teasers or some other kind of uh, gamification, then you're going to have more people involved. And, and you're going to have some people that are just going to do it because there's a game involved. And then the fact that they are learning something as a side benefit, it, it's just that much better. Sure. And I'm, I'm at pains too, to emphasize that, you know, we talked about airline pricing, we talked about gasoline pricing, but this is not just about pricing. It's not just about markets. It's not just about financial markets or, uh, or the money supply. It's about any situation in which people are responding to incentives. Uh, 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 another, uh, uh, you know, I'm a college teacher. Uh, at the end of every semester, my students fill out these evaluation forms where they say how good a job they think I did. And every college professor in the world faces the same thing. There is a lot of evidence, there's a lot of statistical evidence that professors who are physically beautiful always do better on these evaluations than professors who are more average looking. Uh, they, uh, uh, across cultures, across places, everywhere you look, it's the beautiful professors who get the best evaluations. So I pose it as a puzzle. What's going on here? Why are students giving higher evaluations for teaching to professors who just happen to be beautiful? The obvious answer is that students are a little shallow, that they're focusing on things that aren't really important. They're focusing on things that don't really have to do with learning. They're not being serious, something like that. In fact, I want to suggest that this is exactly the result that you should expect. And the reason it's the result you should expect is this. Beautiful people have lots of job opportunities that other people don't have. They've got opportunities first, of course, in the movies and modeling and so on, but also in retail, in sales, anything where you have to deal with the public. It's an advantage to be beautiful. So a beautiful person who goes into college teaching is on average a person who gave up a lot of other opportunities to be a college teacher. And on average, mm. that's going to be a person who's really excited about teaching college. And on average, that's going to be a person who's really good at teaching college. Some of the more ordinary looking professors maybe became professors just because they had nothing else that nobody else wanted them. Uh, and so in any profession, even where beauty plays no role, in any profession, I would expect the beautiful people to be the best because those are the ones, the best other opportunities to get into that job. You show me a lighthouse keeper with movie star good looks, and I will show you the world's best lighthouse keeper because anybody who turned down a career in Hollywood to keep a lighthouse was really into keeping lighthouses. Uh, so the, the, the numbers we see on those uh, evaluation forms 
are exactly what you would expect in a world where students are accurately rating their, their professors. And uh, again, that might not sound like economics, but of course it's economics. It's all about responding to incentives, figuring out uh, equilibrium behavior in a world where different people have different opportunities. Uh, it's all economics. It's the same ideas we use to explain financial markets, uh, just using them to explain uh, uh, other phenomena. That is wild, man. That is, yeah, that, that is very interesting. And, and I guess you're right. When you look at it from that point of view, somebody who's got, again, like you said, movie star or model good looks, and they're doing this profession that isn't based on their looks, then most likely, yeah, they're going to be better at it for a lot of different ways. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, one of the best attorneys I've ever met, this guy to me had the entire package. He was a good looking guy. Uh, he was tall, uh, super smart, graduated, I think top of his class. Uh, and on top of that, he had great people skills. And on many occasions he would he would, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, win the case, and the opposing counsel would end up hiring him down the road <laughs> for a, you know, for a different, you know, for a different type of case or scenario or whatever. But I mean, he he got he got jobs left and right because, but again, he was good looking, tall, great people skills, and he was a good litigator. I mean, he he was just. The total package. Uh, so, but I, but I never thought about when you when you uh, what do you call it? Take away the 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 looks that yeah they have to be in this profession because they're really good at it or they really have a passion for it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, so many other uh, places you find the same sort of uh, uh, surprising surprises which are obvious once you think them through although they're very surprising when you first hear them one more example there are um, many cultures around the world where we we know from all sorts of evidence that parents prefer have a strong preference for sons over daughters there are many many cultures uh where uh people people really have a, a strong preference for sons and in those uh cultures in those places and at those times there are adoption agencies uh, when people go into those adoption agencies, do you think they ask for boys or do you think they ask for girls? You would, the obvious answer is, well, of course, if it's in a place where most people prefer boys, they're going to be asking for boys. The fact is they overwhelmingly ask for girls. And the question is, how do you explain that? Uh, and the answer, uh, I'm, I'm nearly sure the answer is this, that in a place where people really have a strong preference for boys, sometimes they will put a girl up for adoption just because she was a girl. Mm. Whereas they put a boy up for adoption because he's got behavioral problems or health problems or so he was difficult to deal with. Uh, right. of, of course, people go to adoption agencies for all sorts of reasons, but these are some of the reasons people go to adoption agencies and they, they play into the overall statistics. The Boys at the adoption agency, on average, are going to be boys who were real problems because the parents wouldn't have given them up unless they were a real problem. The girls at the adoption agencies, some of them are perfectly happy, healthy, cheerful, 
uh, intelligent kids who just happened to be girls and their parents didn't want them. If you live in that culture and you're aware of this, even if you personally would prefer a boy, you still might say, I'm going to get a girl because I expect the boys in this place by and large are trouble and the girls are not. Uh, and so, uh, in fact, the stronger the preference for boys, the more the adoption agencies get asked for girls. And again, seems very surprising on the surface, seems hard to explain on the surface, seems like people are making a mistake on the surface. But the theme of the book, Can You Outsmart an Economist, over and over again, is that if people are doing something that doesn't seem to make sense, they probably have a reason for it, and it's worth taking a little time to figure out what that reason is. Yeah, you know what, this is, uh, to me, this is kind of an eye-opening conversation, Stephen. I, I just uh, am delighted that uh, you came on the show to talk about uh, your latest book, because sometimes people's motivations aren't clear, and this kind of gives you a different dimension to think about. I, I love the the example of the adoption agency that that is again i never would have thought about boys versus girls in that in that sense it uh it applies to uh you know every aspect of life it uh you know you can use this kind of reasoning we talked about it in the college classroom we talked about it in the adoption agency uh and and you can go even uh you don't have to restrict yourself to human beings uh Ask yourself if you take a big, strong pig and a weak little pig and put them in a box and make them compete for food, what's going to happen? Well, economists figured out what was likely to happen, and uh, it's not what you would expect. In fact, the, the little, little pig gets most of the food. The little yeah, pig I was going to say the little food. pig. Go ahead. And uh, it's not what you would expect, but uh, fortunately, the biologists have done this experiment for us. They have put the pigs in a box, and they have behaved exactly the way economists told them that they would. Uh, because here is the setup. At one end of the box, there's a lever, and at the other end of the box, there's a food bowl. You push the lever, and the bowl fills up with food. Now, think about the incentives that these pigs are facing. If the little pig pushes the lever, the big pig is going to wait by the bowl and eat all the food. And the little pig figures that out very fast and realizes there's no point in bothering to push that lever. I'm not going to get fed. On the other hand, if the big pig pushes the lever, the little pig waits by the bowl, eats most of the food until the big pig comes running the length of the box, pushes the little pig out of the way, and grabs the last few crumbs. Uh, that's just enough of an incentive. The big pig knows he can do that. The little pig knows he can't. The big pig knows that if he pushes the lever, most of the food will be gone by the time he gets down to the bowl, but at least there will be a little bit left and we'll get some food that gives him just enough incentive to push that lever. And that's what happens then day after day after day. The, uh, the big pig pushes the lever. The little pig eats 85% of the food. The big pig comes along and eats the rest. Uh, and uh, before long, the little pig becomes the big pig and the big pig becomes the little pig. But uh, uh, again, uh, a little bit of economic theory tells you that's exactly what's going to happen. Economists had this worked out long before the biologists did the experiment. They did the experiment, and it works out exactly as economics tells you it should. So it, this is something I, I just never thought about, that uh, when you're taking this economy theory, it, it, it's not just 
dollars and cents. It, it obviously permeates all levels of society. Anything where people are trying to accomplish something and they're facing costs and they're facing benefits and they're facing incentives, uh, you know, it certainly applies to uh, uh, financial markets. And there's lots in the book about financial markets. There's lots about statistics. There's lots about uh, uh, social problems like discrimination, uh, but also lots about individual choices, people's decisions about how many children to have and when to get married and when to get divorced. Um, uh, and and then again, uh, also more traditional uh, subjects like pricing. I I just bought a Sony television, and I was a little surprised to discover that no matter where I go to shop for that television, it's the exact same price. If I go to a fancy store, if I go to Best Buy, if I go to a a, a little discount electronics store, if I try to buy it on the internet, that television set is the exact same price everywhere I go. And that raised a puzzle. Why is that? Why, 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 why are they all charging exactly the same price? Turns out Sony requires this. Sony tells them, you, if you want to sell this television set, you have to sell it for mm. exactly $3,000 or we won't provide you any television sets. Now, the question is, why does Sony want to do that? The obvious answer, the wrong answer, the wrong but obvious answer is that <laughs> Sony is trying to keep up the price of television sets. The reason that's wrong is that Sony doesn't care – about the retail price of television sets, they care about the wholesale price. They already control the wholesale price. They sell to the retailers for $2,000, and then why should they care whether the retailer resells it for $2,100 or $2,200 or $3,000? Uh, in fact, you might think they would want them to discount it so that they would sell more television sets and come back right. to Sony for more. So why is Sony so eager to keep up the retail price of the television set? turns out the reason for that is that uh, they're worried about people like me who, if the price varied from one place to another, here's what I would do. I would go over to Best Buy where they have every model of television set up on the wall so I can look at them all, and I can take two hours of the salesperson's time to ask them about all the advantages and disadvantages and all the features of the different models. And after I've got my education at Best Buy, my afternoon's worth of education, I go down the street to the discounter, and I buy the set for $300 less. Uh, if I do that, then before long, Best Buy is going to say, to hell with this, we're not carrying Sony products. That's what Sony wants to avoid. Uh, they don't care that I'm getting a discount, but they do care about the fact that if somebody's offering me a discount, I'm going to uh, impose a lot of costs on uh, many of the retailers who aren't offering discounts, they want to avoid that because they want those retailers, of course, to continue carrying their products. Man, yeah, absolutely smart. Um, that that is just absolutely brilliant. Uh, and it's it's amazing how all of this stuff. Uh, you know, you mentioned it twice now. You know, bearing the cost. So so all these different things that that weave themselves into this uh, into. Economy or economy theory. This is just amazing. Um, all right. So how can people uh, find out more about you or get their hands on? Can you outsmart? Is it? Is that right? Can you outsmart? Can you any, outsmart uh, an economist? Yeah. Can you outsmart an economist? So, so I'm well, a, here's I'm, how to I'm get a, your hands on it. Yeah. Let's talk about <laughs> here's that. How to get, and here's how to get your hands on the first chapter for free. 
Uh, go to outsmartaneconomist.com. Um, that's all one word, outsmartaneconomist, all one word, dot com. Uh, and that's the website where you can read the first chapter for free, decide if this is the book for you. And uh, you can read some reviews, and there are uh, links to click on if you want to buy a copy. Man, that's great. That is great. Uh, all right, so before you go, give us one more example, one more teaser or uh, from the book, Can You Outsmart an Economist? We, you know, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of examples in the book about how to not be fooled by statistics. So one of my favorites uh, comes from the University of California at Berkeley several years ago. Somebody noticed that they were overwhelmingly accepting male applicants to graduate school at a much higher rate than female graduates, even when the uh, than female applicants, even when the applicants were all equally well qualified. Uh, you've got I'm making these numbers up, but they're roughly in the ballpark. Uh, you know, two thirds of the men applying are getting in. One third of the women applying are getting in. And uh, uh, the on paper, the males are any better qualified than the females. Uh, this looks on the surface like discrimination. It seems to be obvious discrimination. It was so obvious that it generated a substantial lawsuit against the university. And that loss, they got to court, and then the case fell apart completely when somebody looked a little deeper at the numbers and realized that what was happening was that for some reason, women were overwhelmingly applying to the most selective programs and men to the least selective programs. If you've got a medical school that takes 2% of the applicants and most of the applicants are female, then you're going to be seeing a lot of females get rejected. If you've got a law school that takes almost everyone and, and mostly men apply to it, you're going to see a lot of men getting accepted. Uh, it turns out when you look at the numbers that this completely, completely explains all of the discrepancies that you see. And in fact, when you correct for this, it looks like there's a little bit of discrimination against men, not against women. Uh, as soon as this was pointed out in court, the case fell apart. It was thrown out of court, uh, not before a lot of lawyers made a lot of money. But um, this is one of, of several examples in the book. I'll mention the title again, Can You Outsmart an Economist? One of several examples uh, of statistics that appear on the surface to unambiguously show one thing, and yet when you delve a little bit deeper into them, they show you quite the opposite. Man, that is so cool. Uh, Stephen, I've never had so much fun talking about weird things like, uh, you know, like we've talked about today, you know, the big pig, the little pig. Pigs uh, in boxes. The, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I've just had so much fun. The book, Can You Outsmart an Economist, available at outsmartaneconomist.com, outsmartaneconomist.com, or wherever your favorite books are at, like Amazon or whatever. Uh, I'm also going to put a link in the show notes here, outsmartaneconomist.com. Uh, Stephen Landsberg, this is a fun way to learn about economy, about economics. And you know what? This is something that is missing in school. Uh, you know, I read a book, um, by, and the book is uh, called uh, How to Measure a Life, I believe. And he talked about why people hire, uh, why people hire a, a milkshake. What job do people hire a milkshake to do? And in this particular chapter, they found out that it, it wasn't just that they were hiring this milkshake to uh, 
to, what do you call it, give them nutri nutrients or, or fill their belly, but also to make the commute that much easier and that much more entertaining. And, and so in the same chapter, it goes on to talk about, you know, uh, parents hire school to educate our kids, but kids hire the school to socialize and have fun. And so that is uh -huh. a long way of saying this is the kind of stuff that schools need to incorporate in their materials or in their curriculum more often. Because if things like this were allowed in our school system, we would have brighter, more engaged kids because they would be learning and having fun and they could see how one thing applies to the other. I just love this book. Can you outsmart an economist? I, I just, I'm so delighted that you wrote the book and I want to wish you the mo uh, tremendous success with it and uh, can't wait to have you back on the show. That's all very kind of you and I'm very glad you had me here. Good stuff there from Stephen Landsberg. Get it today, outsmartaneconomist.com or go to wherever you buy your favorite books. Can you outsmart an economist? Great samples here today by best-selling author Stephen Landsberg. As always, my friend, let's share this episode with everyone we know. Let's help everybody understand economy, understand some of these theories, understand how, that they can actually uh, have brain teasers and, and puzzles and not only help their brain, but actually become smarter uh, along the way. And as always, my friends, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for sharing the show. Remember, you were created to succeed. Tune in Monday through Friday here on Money for Lunch. And check out our website at moneyforlunch.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.